I always love to hear from people who found their particular niche in the world through unconventional methods. In this episode of We Are the World We Create, we will discover from some creative people about the sometimes unusual routes they took to find their calling and how that journey shaped their identity as artists or, in the case of one chef, a whole signature style of cuisine. So get yourself comfortable, turn up the volume, ignore any interruptions and join me, Dr Bill Lumsden, as we hear from renowned international artist, beastman and master chef Reynold Pornomo. So first of all, I need to know, do I refer to you as Brad, Bradley, Beastman? What are you comfortable with? Brad's fine. I get all three, but Brad's fine. Brad's fine. Brad. <laughs> But if I'm looking you up and I'm trying to look for, for the world that you've created with your art, it's Beastman, right? All right, I'm, I'm here with Beastman. You're an artist. Can I call you an artist? Yeah, I'm an artist, yeah. You're an artist, that's what you would call yourself? That's what I call myself. <laughs> um, and we're, we're here to talk a little bit about the art of visual seduction. It sounds very romantic. It does. It's <laughs> mysterious and romantic. I think I'm making these images and then I'm encouraging people to interact with them in, in any way they choose to do so. And that's why I love art in public space and that's why I love making art now. It's like I can churn out these artworks that, that do have themes that mean something to me and that they're done in my style, which is recognisable and it's distinctive. And But, you know, I just love putting it out there and seeing the reaction that people get from it. And, you know, if, if that's seducing people, then that's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, I'd also be equally happy if someone d disliked it as well and, and was confused by it and, and hated it. I'd be like, I, I would actually love that reaction because I don't think I get that reaction very often. So I think something like that would actually make me question even more what I was doing. And I think now more than ever, I, uh, I'm starting to do that and like starting to question what I'm making and making sure it has purpose. Because I guess, is that a challenge, you know, have you ever, do you just put the artwork out there and it goes in, in an exhibition? Do you ever hang around and wait? Like I know I've been to, say, movie openings where the actors have had to stay there and watch the audience's reaction. I would think that would be so confronting. You know, I would think just put the artwork out there and then walk away. You know, light a match, walk <laughs> away. Just however um, it's consumed, it's I consumed. Think, I think when I was um, younger, like emerging artist, it was daunting to like put my work out there to start with. Um, I used to just paint as a hobby and and then I used to work as a graphic designer, designing websites and doing a range of kind of boring jobs. And it took a long time for me to transition, you know, to actually be making money from my painting. It took many years, you know, to make money from my art. But um, so when I was younger and was putting my work out there and yeah, I was super nervous to see people's reactions to it. And I was like, I hope they like it, you know, like maybe I hope someone actually maybe wants to buy it, you know, like, and they, they were great things to looking back, like that was exciting, you know, but like, but these days I don't have that same fear or anything. I definitely, as you, as you grow older as an artist and your work evolves and then I've definitely got a lot of confidence like in my work and then, you know, I am confident people will like it. You know, like I've just done it that much now and I've made so many paintings and I have received so much positive feedback over many years of making art. So I feel good about what I do based what, on past reactions. What about if it goes the other way? What about if it challenges someone yeah. or people respond negatively or, you know, you're Beastman, you're standing by work of labour of love that you've sat there and toiled over for however long and someone sidles up next to you and goes, 
uh, I get it, but I don't like it. That's, all, that's great. At least they've sat there and looked at it and thought about it and decided that they had an opinion on, about it that was strong enough for them to say something. You know, that's great. I mean, I've, I've interacted with them through my artwork and I've made them think about it. And even if they're just looking at it going, I hate these colours or something, I'd be like, okay, cool. Like, that's awesome. Like, what colours do you like? You know, <laughs> it just creates conversation. It's interesting. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in that situation, I'm interacting with a stranger I've never met before purely through, through an image that I made. Like, I like that concept. So you're happy for them to be part of your world? Oh, yeah. I'm happy for anybody to, to jump in and be part of my, my art world that I've created. Um, everyone's welcome, even if they don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> even if they mess the place up, you yeah, don't mind. Yeah, I'm happy for them to mess the place up. It'll probably, just in a, in a weird way, just steer me in the next direction of where I'm going with it. You know, it'll, it'll only help me. As I said, does it make you a better artist to get that feedback, to know that you're constantly striving for something different, something unique, yeah. you know, that element that's, that's totally Beastman? Yeah, it definitely would. I mean, I think any feedback would be beneficial to me. So. It's hard though. That's your baby, you know. Um, but at the same time, I, there's, there's a majority of positive feedback that I receive. So if there is negative, it's it's very small in relation to all the positive feedback I get from people. So it wouldn't bother me. <laughs> I like to just convey like a a pretty basic idea or theme about the artwork, which isn't necessarily too specific. So at least, and then. Apart from that, I'd rather it mostly be just pure viewer perception of what they're looking at, you know. But if I can slide a slight idea into their head while they're looking at it, even if it's just through the title of the artwork or, or one specific element in the artwork that's obvious what it is, and then that would make them think about everything that's surrounding that. Or if it's a certain title to the artwork and they, they read the title and then they look at the artwork, then that would make them think about the artwork in a little bit of a different way. It'll try and help them discover what they're looking at based on the title. Or, um, but yeah, I, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily interested in writing a huge essay like, about what my artwork is. And the what, art should what speak it means. for itself. Right? Yeah, the, the art really does speak for itself. And then I, I have lots of people that really enjoy my artwork and purely for its visual um, aesthetic and how it just looks. Like they just love the colors, they love the shapes and they might not necessarily be a deep thinker or someone that like really looks into art in, in, a, in that kind of way. Yeah, like or in, wants to look for symbolism or... Yeah, that they just love how it looks and they want to put it in a house and just, just look at it and it make them smile. And that's great, like that's also fine, so... But you know what it's taken to get to that point, those tiny intricate little brush strokes, the, the oh, yeah. flattening of colour, the brightening of elements. Yeah, I know all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of time spent making making art. But um, see, so yeah, I know all those little details in the artwork and I know that there's all these themes and ideas inside all these different paintings that I make um, that are there, that I put in there. And, and it is, to me, the artwork is something. Um, but I don't necessarily have to tell the audience like about all those little things. It's like they can discover them if they want to. Isn't isn't that in essence, I guess, the art of visual seduction? Yeah, that, that we're it brought is. along for that ride, and we are so sucked into that world, but we don't know why. And all of a sudden, yeah. we're there in a love affair. It's yeah, happening. Yeah, and ideally, that 
that period of time that, that, that they are seduced by the painting could last years. You know, like if you put a painting in your home of mine and you don't know really what it is and you could spend years looking at it before you finally go, I think I know what this painting means now. You know, that's awesome. Like to be able to provide someone with an artwork that they can enjoy in that way and constantly question and maybe find something new in it, like every time they look at it, like that's what I think I'm really trying to achieve. So, but if I was to write down, yeah, like a, an essay about all of those things straight up so they already knew it all, like well, what's the point in What's the point in it all? There's nothing for them to discover, you know? It's, it's sort of just already told for them. It's the mystery. I guess if you were to write down a recipe for what makes Beastmen and what makes your world that you've created and your artwork that you've created uniquely you, would I be able to go and reproduce it? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, because there's just so many years there of, um, and there's so many individual tiny little um, ways that I make these artwork, they're all, you'd be surprised how I actually initially sketch up some of these ideas and they're almost, they almost organically grow out of, out of measurement, surprisingly. So yeah. I would, uh, if I was, when I start drawing a painting, it starts with measurement and it starts with like, kind of like a grid. And then, it, then I bring in shapes and I bring in elements and patterns and then it grows and, and it organically pieces together. And like, I don't think anyone else would be able to recreate it because there's so many little repetitive things that I do that are in the initial creative process that when you look at the end result, you might not see those things, but that's how it's been That sounds so methodical. Created. It sounds methodical and quite... It is methodical. Mathematical and mechanical. Does not sound at all like what I imagined a creative process would be for an artist like yourself. No, it's very, it's very repetitive and, and it is almost mathematic and it's like but but that's how my mind works and that's that's the process I go through to, to make the work and to create my artistic world I guess it's like and then and the colors are another thing you know when I first started making artwork I used very few colors because I didn't understand color theory then so I would just make a color a, a, a painting that just had maybe two colors in it something like that but now like like colors so awesome. I use almost every color of the rainbow now when I make artwork and the colors are, are now used to represent different things and create different moods within the painting and how they relate with each other. Like if you place certain colors next to each other, how that looks and using shades of colors to create depth in the work. And this is all stuff that I've learned over many years. Yeah. So I don't think someone could just like, just simply replicate that. Like it's just so many years of, um, you know, me just trying things and working it out, <laughs> involved in it. You know? Yeah. So. And creating the beastman world. Yeah. It's almost planning for the unplanned or that striving for perfection, but it not being that in the end product. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, um, I'm not sure if I'm striving for perfection. I think as I get older, if anything, I'm trying to, trying to loosen it up a bit and make things look a bit imperfect. But I think when I was younger, I was trying to really be perfect with how I was making everything and think uh, trying to force myself to not make perfect things is changing my work as well and it's, it's going to alter it in, in a different way um, but I still have that design eye and I still I still see measurement and I still see I'd still look at everything in that same way so it's really hard for me to not have my artwork look neat and look 
look polished and look clean, you know, so that'll probably forever be part of it. Are you a control freak? In, generally in life, I don't think I'm a control freak. But you're in control? No, I don't have to be in control. I, I'd say I'm a neat freak. <laughs> I like things to be neat and organised. But I don't think I need to have control. But um, I just like things to be neat and tidy <laughs> and line up. And, and order. Be, be in balance. Yeah, just balance and order is nice. Planned spontaneity is a phrase that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for letting us have a little insight into what it's like to be in that world. <laughs> that bright, colourful, meticulous, perfect, imperfect world. <laughs> no worries. At the end of the 8th century AD, on a windy peninsula in the far northeast of Scotland, one of the most significant pieces of early European sculpture, the Hilton of Cadball Stone, was being carefully carved by the Picts, our ancient Scottish ancestors. Centuries later, battered by time and half-destroyed, the original stone was relocated to the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh for safekeeping. The sculptor Barry Grove was commissioned to recreate the stone by hand with a hammer and chisel. The highly skilled carvings in the Cadball stone would come to inspire our brand emblem, our signet. Work began in the front face of this enormous slab of sandstone in 1998 and it would take Barry over 14 months of painstaking labour before the sculpture. A testament to the skill of both the ancient Pictish and modern day Scottish people could be reinstalled on its original location on land donated to the historic Hilton Trust by the Glenmorangie Company. Am I, am, I, am I Chef Reynolds? Can I call you that? Have you graduated uh, yet? I feel like you have. I, personally, it sounds a bit weird, but I don't even call myself a chef. Um, in my kitchen, you, you'll see me. Uh, I'll just wear a T-shirt. Everyone else wears chef's whites, but for me, I, I don't know. I, I feel a bit iffy being called a chef because I know I'm not one. How can you not be one? Your creations are amazing. Well, that's one thing. Um, but I mean, like, the reason why I call myself a chef is because I haven't gone through the traditional way all the other chefs go through, which is like, you know, uh, get the apprenticeship done, four years of hard work and all that stuff. And I feel like I did cheat my way through a little bit, so I can't call myself a chef yet. I wouldn't say cheating because you're still working hard yeah. and there's something to be said for hard work. But let's go back a bit. Obviously, we know you, Reynold. You came to the public for, I guess, yeah. via MasterChef. But that was just a springboard for you, I guess, right? Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. And you, your background is, your family is entirely in hospitality, right? Funny thing about that is, like, we didn't start with hospitality. I was wanting to go to hospitality. My mom, my dad, my, even my brothers were saying, don't do it. It is a tough life, and I, I witnessed it firsthand. Um, I'd come home, no one's home. I'd have to cook my own food. And I was so skinny as a kid. Cause I, didn't know, I didn't have <laughs> So to hungry, mum. Where are you? <laughs> really? That's pretty much it. And uh, my brother's been working as well. Uh, my oldest brother, Ronald, he was as a as project manager at a digital firm. And he didn't get into the industry until, in a way, my mom had to you know, get operations on hands. So he jumped in. Arnold was overseas doing his own thing. And then for me, I was doing nutrition. I was studying Bachelor of Food Science um, wanted to be a nutritionist and I didn't do too well I failed <laughs> is uh, it because you love sweet creations no I actually <laughs> wasn't into sweets uh, I'm not a big sweet to it to be honest 
And wow, yeah, and then you know, I met a little, you know, special someone, and then afterwards, you know, cook for them, obviously trying to impress them, right? Yeah, and that's where it all, all began. Well, because a way to do a love's heart is through a stomach, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, it's like, it's like works for me. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking with Doctor Bill, mm. and he him he he would say that he gets bored very easily too. Oh, okay. And he's <laughs> fully open to experimentation and, and pushing the boundaries and testing the limits and seeing, you know, what more he can do. Thinking about whiskey and Glenmorangie is, uh, you know, a family run and, and, and quite a heritage um, whiskey. But what more can he do to put his spin on it? And that's his sort of been his MO, I guess, mm, over the years. Mm. So you're the same. You're pushing the boundaries. I mean, you opened a dessert bar. You opened Koi. Yeah. and now When I'm, that wasn't really a thing to do. No, not really, because my dream was, you know, ever since throughout school, I, I wanted to have a dessert bar. Um, I, in Sydney, there was none. In Melbourne, there was a few. And I thought, okay, uh, I actually jumped into the family business in a way, coincidentally. My brother was meant to be with someone else as a business partner, but I came along. They asked me to come, you know, join by and... Pretty much, we were the first dessert bar, proper dessert bar in Sydney, at least, what I think. And it worked well. So we talk about creating this world. Um, when I've, I've been lucky enough to come to Koi, and it is an amazing space, and everyone is always happy. You create these amazing desserts, and I don't think anyone would ever be disappointed having a sweet treat. Although you're not a sweet tooth yourself. I'm not a big sweet tooth. I mean, every now and then I do, I do binge. Which is weird. I have like five cakes at once. I'm like, oh, just craving it. <laughs> that sounds like heaven. Yeah. Do you need a chief cake tester? Because I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you do that? How, who do you trial your new creations with? It, it can't be you because surely you're too attached to your projects that you just can't be objective. Oh, honestly, there are times where we do get mental blanks. We're like writer's block for, for cooks. Mm-hmm. It's tough, to be honest. You, you want to do something different, do something new, and it's... You just got nothing. And that's the hardest part of the job, uh, creativity. I mean, there are times where everything just starts to flow. And you're just like, oh, you got these visions of this dish and you know, pairing with these kind of flavors and it's going to look like that. 90% of the time doesn't work. So there's a lot of experimentation that goes with it, uh, flavor pairings. Because people these days, they don't want the um, traditional same, same. Like, like the typical kind of flavors, like, okay, raspberry chocolate, berries and chocolate. It's the same kind of thing. Or strawberries and cream. We want to kind of be a bit more different. And I guess aesthetics is another thing. So, it's yeah, it's kind of hard. Creative process is, is really hard. There's not really much that I um, have, you know, a, a base on. Uh, for example, uh, okay, people, when they ask me, what are you inspired by? I have no idea. Sometimes I sit in, you know, like in my room or in the shower and driving the car. I was like, oh, that's a big, that'll be a great dish. It just pops out of nowhere. So, talking about the craftsmanship. We're not, we can't call you Chef Ronald just yet. <laughs> Are you ever going to get any formal qualifications? I feel like you don't need to. No, I'm not going to. It's a challenge of my own to kind of learn it myself. And then I realized, okay, this is not a sprint, this industry. It's a marathon. Uh, I'm thinking to kind of go overseas and go to other restaurants that I, you know, the chefs that I've admired, the chefs that have made me turn, want to be a cook and work in their restaurants. And I guess it's it's pushing those boundaries. It's, it's thinking about how to be innovative and yeah. bringing that back to what you do. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Innovation is key. It's hard as well. There's not really much new things these days. It's getting harder and harder to find something that's different, something new.
There are many things that come together to determine the final quality of our whiskies at Glenmorangie. But you know, at the heart of this ethos is choosing the right raw materials, the perfect raw materials to make our whisky with. That means having the right water source, the best quality malting barley and the right yeast varieties for use. The water source at Glenmorangie is totally unique in the world of Scotch whisky. We have our own private spring, the Tarlogie Spring, with uniquely hard mineral-rich water. And these minerals combine with the yeast during the fermentation to produce the unique flavours we find in our whisky. So it's all about starting off with the best raw materials, and that's the only way you can end up with a perfect whisky. When I think of you, I think of the end product, the cakes, the desserts that you create are so visually appealing. We talk about the art of visual seduction. Mm. Like, I want to dive in and I want to eat every single one. How do you do that? Where does that inspiration come from? Uh, that's kind of hard to say. I, I did study art a little bit in school. I don't really like to speak about it much because it's just, I was pretty, I wasn't that great at it as well. <laughs> I did have like a... I love sketching. I really do. Uh, from sketching animals, um, you know, people's hands and stuff like that. And then, you know, thinking about food, it's just like it's got to be bright in some way. It's got to contrast with the, you know, from the, like, say, darker colors, contrast with something bright. And then colors that can go well together. You know, if you have white, green, and red, you know, that kind of reminds you of the Joker kind of thing. You want to make something a bit more appealing, such as, you know, something a bit more luxurious, say, like dark brown or even black and a bit of gold then you have luxury, something like that. So is presentation important? Presentation is important to an extent. Um, if you're a fancy restaurant, yeah, I guess people would want to see the, uh, the skill. Presentation is, uh, from that point of view, is how the chefs create the food from, from scraps to something so beautiful. That's where the skills come from, uh, a visual um, talent, I guess. It's important. I'd imagine it's quite the process. Uh, it is. So visuals always come last. Uh, for me, it sometimes comes first. I want something to look like something, then I work with the flavors to kind of represent that dish. Uh, so, for example, let's say you want to create a flavor that is, you know, so you create balance of sweetness. So balance is everything when it comes to balance of visual, textures, and flavor. So balance of work with the sweetness, with the saltiness, uh, the sourness. And then, say you want something a bit more prominent, say a bit more smoky, go towards the sweetness, so, so I kind of balance out a little bit. And then you have a little bit of acidic notes to kind of, you know, make sure it's not too sweet, it's not too smoky, and it kind of light enough at the same time to kind of, you know, that, that sourness kind of brings it back a little bit. So creating this world in which you, you live in, and the, your amazing desserts, I, again, I feel like I'm in a Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, but you've created this amazing world. Your signature is the dessert. How do you constantly improve on a dessert that you've created? Oh, okay, that's kind of tough. Um, because if you already have a masterpiece, to improve that is pretty tough because, okay, if you take something out, it won't be as good. You put something in, it ruins everything. So I guess uh, one, one, one of the key things that these days chefs are doing is keep it, keeping it simple. How cool of, a, of an experience is it that you've created that world for your customers, for your diners? Sometimes they don't get it, sometimes they do, but I'm yet to kind of create a world where I can get everyone to understand it. 
uh, what my philosophy of food is because I'm a bit of a weird guy where everything's just. For example, if I'm talking to you, I'm also thinking of dishes. <laughs> Same thing, with my girlfriend. I do space out as well, uh, quite quite often. Um, All right. So, what dish would I would be then? Oh no, no. I mean, like, <laughs> say I'm having like a, a conversation, and then I'm just drifting off in my mind at the same time as I talk. Oh, and then I've, I, I just go off topic. It's like, oh, this dish is going to go really well with this, 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 this. And, and you've so created a shopping list. Kind of, yeah. And I kind of visualize it as a, I kind of imagine how it's going to taste and how it looks. All right. You're not looking at people and having conversations with them and thinking about what they might look like, like no. a cartoon lion looks at people <laughs> as a giant steak. No, <laughs> it's like I'm talking to you and I drift off a little bit and I come back to you and I drift off a little bit and so on and so on. You're always thinking about food then? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Food is your life. Um, yeah, I'd say so. Food is life. I mean, it, it's just, I don't know. I just can't stop thinking about, it sounds weird, but I can't stop thinking about creating something different, something new with food. That's the world you've created. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. an incredible gift. Well, well, I didn't know it was a gift. <laughs> well, you have to be good at something. Well, I guess so, yeah. I wasn't smart. I wasn't really athletic, so yeah. Lucky. <laughs> Lucky I've got a gift. <laughs> you found your niche. You found your way in the world. You found the yeah. thing that, the way to communicate with people. Yeah, and I guess, you know, language is another thing and food breaks language barriers and it's it creates culture, creates history and it's one thing where everyone can relate to. It's true, you don't have to all speak the same language but like you said before, it brings people together. No, you can all eat. <laughs> we all eat. Yeah. Just make sure it's tasty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm going out on a Friday night. I'm with my girlfriends. Mm-hmm. What's the go-to dessert? What should I be doing? Should I be asking for a cocktail that goes with the dessert? Should I be only asking for a dessert? What should I be? What should I be ordering? Oh, that's hard to explain. Uh, actually, that's hard to choose because it depends on you. Do you I, know what my favorite game is to do in a restaurant? What? If I can't choose what it is that I want, say it's between two options. Yeah. I will say to the waiter, "Okay, it's between this and this. Just surprise me." Oh, that works with any bar, of course. For me, I like things sour, so, or, okay, I'd rather have a whiskey that's on the rocks, or a whiskey sour, which is the classics, or you can have something a bit more interesting, which is like called blood and sand. Is that something you've created? No, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a it's cocktail. It's a traditional cocktail? It's a cocktail. Okay, okay, I've never heard of this before, it sounds so very the blood, violent. The blood represents either blood orange or a cherry liqueur, and the sand is orange, with whiskey, with vermouth as well. It's so dry. Really tasty. Have you created this in a dessert? No. No. <laughs> can you? Yeah. Cocktails can be desserts and desserts can be cocktails. What about if I only ever have cocktails and dessert? I'm such a sweet tooth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm moving my line. I always have dessert. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, sometimes it's a bit too sweet, but no, I make sure it's not. Dessert is life, man. I've had four root canals. It's terrible. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I should be admitting that, but dessert <laughs> is life, man. Reynold, dessert is the greatest thing ever. And, and it's incredible that, you know, you've created this world that brings so much joy and is visually seductive and it tastes amazing and that it draws people in and that gives them an experience. Thanks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thanks. You have created that world. That is quite amazing. And I guess the whole process is about sharing that. Yeah. And I'm... Um pretty grateful and thankful that you know everyone kind of enjoys my little world i agree mm. i think it's a great gift to be able to share all right well thank you for sharing 
Your journey? Sorry, pleasure. At Glenmorangie, we're very proud of our heritage and our roots. You know, the ancient lands and people who were here before us. Ancient people cultivated the very same fields that surround Glenmorangie's highland home and distillery today. The very same fields where we grow our barley that eventually becomes our whisky. And it was here, in this area, many, many years ago, bordering the sea, that the ancient Scottish people, the Picts, carved their story onto our very own Cadball stone. An ancient treasure that, with its intricate, highly skilled carvings, has become the perfect symbol of the brand and an icon of Scotland. So moving from one creative group to another in our next episode, we're going to be talking to musicians, marrying the future with the past. It sounds incredibly interesting, doesn't it? Well, you'll just have to find out in the next episode. (laughs) 